All right, so I know some of you got a giggle out of my uh, text or my email that went out yesterday saying, see you in hell tomorrow at 10. <laughs> but you didn't have nearly as much fun as I did sending it. So that makes it all even. So we're in this uh, series called Becoming Our True Selves. And uh, we're playing with a handful of things. We're playing with uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, last week we took a look at the Dark Wood of Air. This week we're talking about the Inferno, uh, which we get lots and lots of imagery of what we refer to as hell from that. Uh, we actually went a little too nuts with that in the Western world, and we took it actually as gospel truth and scared the hell out of people <laughs> to try to woo them into the arms of God somehow. And that was a terrible mistake, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, today we're taking a look at the Inferno. And this guy, um, Dante Alighieri, which you can't see, we're having, a, we're having demons in our, talk about demons in the day of we're talking about hell. So uh, we have demons in our electronics today. So things are being weird. I don't know if it was a lightning last night, but anything. Things are a little bit off. But Dante Alighieri uh, lived about 700-ish years or so ago. Uh, this was a time uh, where things were really wonky in the world. The church was really wonky in the world. There were lots of power and political plays that were going on. And uh, you hear a lot about that in his writing, especially in this one uh, called um, The Inferno. And what we're going to look at today, just to give you kind of a heads up how to think about Dante's work. Like a lot of great works, uh, he begins his story in the middle of his story. Like Star Wars started on on, uh, you know, whatever, chapter four, uh, and carried forward and then went back. Well, he starts talking about himself in the dark wood of error. And he's lost. He can't figure out his way out. The way that, the only way he knows how to get out, which is to get up Mount Delectable, he can't get out that way. So, uh, and if he tries, there are these wild animals that threaten to devour him. So he knows that can't be the way, and so he's desperate. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this space. And right at that moment, this person shows up, someone to guide him. And that person, out of his imagination, is his favorite poet and philosopher, Virgil. He trusts Virgil. That's why he conjured him. And so we have people that, have you ever had that happen, by the way, where you're just, you're in the dark wood of error, and then all of a sudden, it's just like your eyes open to somebody is just the right person that you needed to say just the right words, like you heard the right thing coming out of their mouths. Uh, and, or maybe it was the book that you need to see or a title or something like that and it just sort of is there. Now I contend that these things of God trying to help us along the way are always there uh, but we don't always see them uh, because we have our head stuck in other places <laughs> except looking up and out. <laughs> uh, but when we're in pain we often start to pay attention and we start to look and like Dante crying out uh, in agony and wondering how's he going to get out of this dark wood here shows Virgil. And he has this conversation. Virgil tells him very bad news. The only way out of this mess is through the mess, which is a great counseling truth. And so uh, he takes them to the entrance to the gate of the inferno, hell. And uh, on the top of this gate, it says, uh, abandon all hope, all you who enter here. So let's go, right? <laughs> Now, as we enter into this place, I'm not going to spend too much time on it because we could spend a lot of time just going through the different circles of hell and all that. I'll briefly mention them. I'll show you what they are and that kind of a thing. But here's how I want you to think about uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. How many of you around Christmas time, like I do, watch It's a Wonderful Life? 
I do it, our family does it without fail every Christmas season. Usually Christmas Eve, because that's my Christmas Eve, right? Uh, so we get home, we have our weird traditions, we eat ice cream Sundays on Christmas Eve, that's our thing. And then we pop on uh, It's a Wonderful Life and drink wassail until we're tired and go to bed. Every year. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, uh, A Christmas Carol. Uh, there's a more recent one with Nicolas Cage called The Family Man. Uh, all these movies are movies that tell a story about a person who has a chance to take a look at his life from a very different vantage point. And the first movie, uh, as if he'd never was born, and the second one, through the lens of his past, present, and potential future, family man, a whole different life if he would have made some different choices in his life. Think of the Divine Comedy as in that general genre, as he's trying to tell us something about our lives and help us look at ourselves differently. That's why we're going through hell. We're going to look at these nine circles and we're going to ask the, he is asking the question, Virgil is telling him as he's accompanying him deeper and deeper into the inferno, he's telling him, ask questions of the people that you see that are trapped here. Ask as much as you want and sometimes he's afraid to. And so Dante says, you ask him. <laughs> and so Virgil is the one that is coaxing the information out of the people so that Dante and us, anybody who reads, can learn from those things, those errors that landed them there in this space of suffering. So the nine different spaces that we have, very briefly, just going to buzz through these, you have the first six circles of hell. Uh, the heathens, the carnal sinners, the gluttonous, the avaricious, the wrathful, and the heretics. By the way, I wore a shirt today which I got from a favorite brewery of mine in Fairfield called Heretic Brewery, and they just happened to have this shirt this year, so I thought, what better day uh, to, to wear this? Uh, and to let you know, I'm right there with you all, number six. The interesting thing is the, the first six here, uh, Dante refers to, or Virgil refers to them as uh, the errors of incontinence the errors of incontinence. It's okay if you want to giggle when I say incontinence, Carrie Nuccio. <laughs> but we're not talking about babies who haven't learned, uh, you know, to, to be potty trained. We're not talking about us adults who, you know, may have lost that function along the way for various reasons. We're not talking about people who laugh so hard that they wet themselves or, or worse, <laughs> right? Uh, really what we're talking about here, according to Martha Beck, who is part of our guide uh, through through hell and through uh, this whole experience, uh, is we need to look at those as errors uh, or, or innocent errors, innocent mistakes that we make. And so these top six are sort of categorized that way. Uh, people who sort of fall into these things, they may not even know uh, that they've done these things. And so as they descend hell, Dante and Virgil find out that's kind of the case. That is really interesting uh, that the carnal sinners uh, get a better place in hell, not quite as bad as the gluttonous. We Americans are in big trouble, man. <laughs> this is going to be rough. And then you get to the avaricious and the wrathful, and then when you get to the heretics, it's not just the heretics like me, but it's the, it's the people who listen to heretics like you. So you're stuck, man. <laughs> but we're in it together. So that's good news. When you get down to the, to the lower levels, uh, seven, eight, and nine, these are what Virgil and Dante uh, define as the errors of righteousness. Errors of righteousness. And really, we ought, to, we ought to call it self-righteousness. These are people who have convinced themselves that the way they are seeing the world is the right way. Pete Inns would call this the sin of certainty. 
Uh, and this, is, this causes great pain <laughs> when we do this. So, and the, for instance, and the violence. So you've got a bunch of different folks who are violent in here. You've got uh, tyrants, murderers, uh, warriors, uh, people who take their own life. Remember, we're talking 700 years ago, and violence against God. Well, uh, take murderers, for example. Martha Beck, who worked in counseling and coaching and that kind of a thing, uh, she actually talked to somebody who uh, was a lawyer uh, for murderers and got many murderers, well, some murderers anyway, uh, off, off the books, you know. Uh, and then he himself became a murderer. And what he, she discovered been talking to him was, because of his insight and working with so many murderers, is the murderers themselves convinced themselves that how they see the world is true and they other the person that they want to kill. So they're no longer quite as human as they are, and therefore they have the right to do what they want. This othering is responsible for racism, all forms of injustice all over the world. We do it to this day all the time. You and I are guilty of it in a multitude of ways if we're honest with ourselves. Uh, and that's where we get this. It's the sin of certainty. And then you get into levels eight and nine, and it's the fraudulent, isn't it interesting? Um, I'll explain this a little bit, but eight and nine are really about liars. Those who are at the pit of hell, according to Dante's experience and insight and imagination, are liars. Liars. I find that very, very curious. At the very bottom, the ones that... Uh, are in the, in the worst space. Of course, you have Judas there uh, because Judas lied, you know, about Jesus. Uh, lying to God, uh, blaspheming is sort of the bottom one. And interestingly, uh, that very frozen area is not a lake of fire. It's a, it's a frozen river. And the, the Satan figure is kind of stuck in there and he's doing his thing, you know, to people and torturing and all that stuff. I want to say just one quick word too. I mentioned this in my secret pastor email that went out yesterday, but I've taught several times on the subject of hell and academics and how do we understand how the concept of hell and the Satan figure developed over time. There's not one way to think about it. It's, an, it's a moving target in Scripture, so hold loosely onto these ideas. And if you want to see what that's about uh, on our YouTube channel, just put in hell or Satan. And actually, the best one is not me, uh, but I brought in a scholar who made it his swan song uh, to get an academic work on this. And I, the title of his book is just a little book, but it's excellent. It was called Kicking Satan and Hell Out of the Church. It's fantastic. So read that if you really want a short, academic, uh, very approachable thing. So that's kind of the picture that we have. Now we get into Martha Beck, and I introduced you to her voice uh, last week. And I was taken by uh, her title of her book, The Way of Integrity. Now, Martha Beck, uh, she and her husband, at the time anyway, um, were PhDs from Harvard in sociology. Uh, she got into uh, life coaching and counseling and that sort of a thing. Um, when she had a, um, her first baby, who came out uh, healthy and normal and all that, and then when she was pregnant with her second child, uh, tests came back that her son uh, was going to uh, have Down syndrome and she thought her life was over and so she went into a major panic um, not wanting to believe that it's true so that abandon all hope all ye who enter here she had to do that uh, with her son because here she is a Harvard person and the son she's going to bring into the world is not going to have the intellectual capacity 
uh, to play in those circles. And it was very stressful. So she and her husband moved back to Utah, where they were from, from Mormon country. She taught in a very conservative Mormon um, uh, university. And there she found herself in turmoil, which I'll get into in a little bit. But what she's discovered throughout her whole experience, we're talking about Dante going into the inferno, and there are all these people who are suffering from errors of incontinence and errors of righteousness. The bottom line, she says, they have to do uh, with pain, of course, and she defines this a little bit in an interesting way. She says, pain comes from events, while suffering comes from the way we handle events, what we do about them, and especially what we think about them. This is a very old idea. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, what upsets people is not what happens to them, but their thought about what happens. So our meditation becomes very helpful because we can back up from that pain event. And if we can get ourselves removed from it a little bit, we can distance ourselves from the event and see it in a new way, which is very, very helpful. So this idea of pain and suffering, I think just like about a month ago I talked about there's a difference between happiness and joy. Well, there's a difference between pain and suffering. Suffering is what we do in response to our pain. And what she contends, especially in light of what Dante had to say in the Inferno, and she says at the heart of every circle are lies we choose to believe that create misalignment from integrity and away from our true selves. So I am combining these two ideas about living in the way of integrity and our true selves because if we really are living in integrity in its deepest sense, we're leaving, living out of our core, and if we believe that the very Spirit of God is part of us and within our core, then to truly live in integrity in its deepest sense is to be living in step as much as we're able to, in step with God. This is the way of Jesus. This is the true self that Thomas Merton talks about, about appreciating our DNA, our genetic makeup, all the things that have influenced us, but recognizing that there is this still small voice that Elijah found out about, that is speaking to us all the time and calling us forward, ways to live, decisions, these types of things, how to think about things. So lying then, uh, which is going away from the truth, steps us away from our true selves. And what she's suggesting here is that Perhaps our suffering is because we have bought a lie that somebody else has told us or we have told ourselves about the event that happened. Pain and suffering are going to happen. But is it possible that the degree of our suffering we have a say on? That maybe if we can dial it in to the lie that may, maybe have, may have been told to us or we have told ourselves, if we can identify that and correct it, maybe it'll make a difference. Maya Angelou says, lying is the cornerstone of all vices. Even the ones that are innocent mistakes, they're still a form of a lie. In her book, uh, Martha Beck has these two questions. One uh, she comes up with, the first one, and one she borrowed uh, from Byron Katie, another person that's in her sphere and in her world. And the two questions are this, um, when, we're, when we're struggling, when we're suffering with something, when we're in the middle of something, 
ask ourselves, what are we hearing right now? What are we telling ourselves about what's happening? So for instance, it might be that uh, somebody sent you a text or an email. And when you read that text or email, I'm sure this has happened to you, it's happened to me, it happens to everybody, you read it in a particular way. And perhaps you read that text or email and you're like, I can't believe that bloppity blop <laughs> had the audacity to write this to me, right? And so you're freaking out and you're just ready to and hit send, but before you do, you're like, there's something in you that says, wait. And so what you do at this point, because you're suffering, right? You're, you're in angst, you're in a mess here. And what Martha Beck would say would be to calm down, take a deep breath, and ask yourself the question, are you sure? the person who sent that message was trying to communicate what you are receiving. Now sometimes it really is that obvious, but a lot of the times it is not. Byron Katie goes one step further, which is why Beck wanted to include it in her book, where she has us ask the question, can you absolutely know that thought is true? Uh, in all truth, um, some of you might hear this and you might be like, oh boy, this is psychological mumbo-jumbo that Pete has found in some off-the-shelf Reader's Digest version of something else, and why, why did I come today? I thought it was going to be more fun than this. <laughs> and you might look at these two questions and think, this is a bunch of baloney, this is not going to work. This, and here, what I want to tell you is this. This does not take the place of counseling. If you've got some serious concerns, counseling is a good thing. If you have a broken leg, you're going to go to the doctor. If you have heart condition, you're going to go to the doctor. If you're having uh, significant issues because of trauma or whatever, you go to a doctor called a therapist. So that's a good thing. Uh, but what I'm suggesting is, is that she's on to something here. And I'm asking you to entertain it particularly those of you who are way intellectual and you love to take shots at this stuff. I'm asking you to sit with it. And the reason I'm asking you to sit with it is because I think it's got merit. And the reason I think it's got merit is because I've experienced it working for me. Now, most of you have been here a while, at least for the last couple years, know that I had to take a month off uh, in 2021 because I was physically and more to the point, emotionally exhausted. And the therapist that I asked about what was happening to me said, you need to stop now. So I immediately wondered how I could stop three weeks from then. <laughs> but he really meant it. And so did my wife. And so I had to take that time off. And one of the lies that I believed that I was telling myself was wrapped up in our culture about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a good worker, and those voices were saying, you never give up. And the only way you're going to be successful or good is if you work and work hard and don't quit. I had a lot of identity up in that. I didn't know Beck's work at that time, but I was able to, because of taking that time off and spending a good chunk of it in my journal and in prayer and quiet, 
able to identify the lies that were informing me and causing me to suffer. It works. There are other things that I learned on my sabbatical last summer about my own identity and other things even, even as frequently as the last 10 days that I, I've identified more lies. And by the way, Beck would say to you that this is an ongoing process, that as we go through our lives, we will find more and more from our human experiences lies that we have heard or told ourselves that need to be examined because they are touching off suffering we don't need to carry. So let's take a look at a biblical example today and see where it takes us. Another fun story. Let's talk about David and Bathsheba, the infamous story of David and Bathsheba. And I just want you to think about uh, this framework because we're going to watch a guy who is in the dark wood of error and we're going to watch this guy listen to uh, some phrases that were probably his as we're going to play around a little bit with this in good rabbinical fashion, which is totally legit. It's okay. It's fine. Uh, and we're going to ask some questions about David and what was going on in him. What lies may he have been telling himself? Because I don't think he was just a louse. I don't think he woke up on a Tuesday and said, eh, marriage, marriage, let's just blow the whole thing up. I don't think that's what happened. I think there were other things going on in his life that contributed to his dark wood of error that led him into the mess that became this infamous story. So we have this. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, because that's what they did, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, one of their arch rivals. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. We can already guess that there are some lies that David is struggling with already. David was a warrior. He was a man's man, to use that term. Uh, the, the language back when Saul was still alive and king that drove Saul crazy, as the word about Saul was he killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. He was tough as nails. This, as the lore goes, whether or not it's exactly right or true or mythology, we're not quite sure, but this is the David that you know, took down Goliath, right, as a kid. Nine-foot Goliath, and he takes him out with a single stone. All kinds of fun stuff there to think about. This is David who loves to be in the battle, loves to be in the mix with his guys, going out and making it happen, making him feel like a man. But this year, for whatever reason, maybe his age, maybe his stage, maybe his chief advisor said, we got this, David. We can't lose you. You, you hang out at the palace. For whatever reason, David is at the palace and it is not making him a happy camper because he lives and breathes on the battlefield. That's where he has his identity, on the battlefield. And now he's just hanging out in the palace while his friends and comrades are risking everything and maybe loving every minute of it, at least in his imagination. I think you're talking about a guy who's on the verge of depression. That's what I think. And I think he doesn't know what to do with it. And he's stuck in this angst 
And it's sort of just kind of going on. And he's wondering about who he is now. And what are, what are people going to think of him? What are, the, what are his friends in the military going to think of him? What are other kings going to think of him? He, he had to stay in his bed all day while all of his friends are... All these things. And you hear the different kinds of lies that he may be entertaining in his head that probably nobody is saying or maybe some people are saying. But he didn't take pause to wonder, are these things true? Are you sure that I'm not a manly man because I'm not there in battle? So I'm saying he was a hot mess. He was a hot mess. Well, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of the bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone, now how did he notice that? Probably because he was looking for it. <laughs> uh, he sent someone to find out who she was and he was told, oh, well, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam. Iliam was one of his mighty warriors, by the way, one of his trusted mighty warriors, sort of the Green Beret, right? So he knows Iliam, daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, also part of that core group. So these are people that he knows. He has relationship with these men. These are the best of the best in the military, and certainly they had a closer relationship with David than others. And then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now, there have been, uh, and there still are, uh, scholars, no, not too many scholars, but at least pastors who uh, wrongly put more blame on Bathsheba uh, than is absolutely appropriate. In fact, I don't think there was anything that Bathsheba did wrong, except for maybe she wasn't aware that there was a pervert watching her at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or something. She did nothing wrong. She was out taking a bath, uh, as was her right to do as a human being. Everything on this deal, uh, the full guilt, resides with David. Why? Maybe you say, well, Bathsheba could have said no. She could have run away. No, she couldn't. You're not living in America where it's still very hard. Uh, think, think Me Too, think Weinstein, right? It's still hard. I'm absolutely certain some of you have stories of your own you could talk about, either yourself or people that you know about how difficult it is when you're in that kind of a position to just walk away. Well, just exponentially exaggerate that idea with Bathsheba. But there's, she has no choice. No choice. He is the guy with all the power. <laughs> she has none. She had no choice. She was stuck. What do we have going on in David here? This is a woman the daughter, once a baby girl, of his friend. This is the beloved wife of one of his green berets. What has happened here? We're in the seventh circle of hell is what's happened here. 
as we have moved from the errors of incontinence, innocent mistakes. I don't know what's happening to me. I'm, in, I'm dark in the woods and I'm making some mistakes. I'm looking at things I shouldn't be looking at that are not good for me or anybody else. And now we've taken it to a new level where he's looking at her with a different lens and telling himself a different kind of truth. Somewhere in there, he's saying, I'm king. She's beautiful. She's in my kingdom. She's mine, technically. What a gift for her to lie with the king. She is dehumanized. She is othered in his eyes. And when we other people, when we dehumanize people, we do what we want with people. And when we commit such lies, it just goes from bad to worse. He's not in agony yet, because he hasn't come to, but she sure is. So then David sent word to Joab, the leader of his armies fighting the Ammonites, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. Uh, David sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, Hey, uh, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah rep replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open field. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. <laughs> he is more honorable than David. And it's starting to drive David a little nuts. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard because he was an honorable man. So the next morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Whoops, something happens. Back. Well, we don't know what's going on. So, uh, <laughs> all right. This is all exciting for all of us. Yeah, I told you there were demons in the electronics today. So he tells uh, tells tells Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to the spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Sorry you didn't get to see the bloody details on the screen. But maybe you will. Oh, go back one, Trudy. There we go. So now, uh, who knows what's going to happen there. <laughs> Let's not even try anymore, all right? <laughs> we'll see. So now what do you got? We're beyond the seventh. Well, we're, we're still in the seventh level because, you know, the seventh level, the seventh circle of the inferno allowed David to buy a lie, to lie to himself about the otherness of Bathsheba. Now it's gone one step further. 
Now we've got the otherness of Uriah. I've got to get rid of the problem. I've got to take this thing away. I've got to cover this thing up. And so it led him to that, which not only led to Uriah's death, but it led to how many other soldiers' death that didn't need to be positioned there just to get rid of one guy. This all takes us to the very depths of hell because now David is blaspheming truly against God, saying that these people don't even matter. They're throwaway people, which is just like Judas saying about Jesus to the Jewish officials, he's a throwaway. He's not who we thought we were. He, he was. Have your way. He's in the garden over here. David went all the way to the bottom of hell, and he was living it. Now, I know this is a strong example, but that's why I chose it. As we have a guy who starts in the dark wood of error, who's just innocent mistaking it along his way, but he's miserable, and he doesn't know exactly why, and because he doesn't check it, doesn't ask himself, what is the lie that I'm holding on to here? It just goes down and down and down, and we are all capable of the same thing, all of us, every one of us. And so my question for you today a couple of them are, where are you suffering? Now, Dave gave us the, the easy out with the traffic thing, and if that's all you got for suffering, just stay home and watch the Niners this afternoon. You don't have to get in traffic. But maybe there's something more. I bet there is. It may be what Beck calls a do not mention zone. You know, that might not be ultra-traumatic because maybe the ultra-traumatic stuff, you really need professional help to walk you through. But it could be something just gnawing at you, something that's causing you suffering related to a painful event that's happening. And so she would ask the question, well, where are you suffering? And secondly, what are you believing? And so this is a great exercise that we'll go deeper on Tuesday and Thursday uh, this week. But... What is the statement that you're hearing in your head about this thing? A statement about yourself, perhaps, most likely. What are you interpreting from the data that is coming to you? Some of you, it might be a workplace thing. Or maybe people in your workplace are giving you a hard time, and you're feeling bad about it, and to just be in their presence is a, is a place of suffering and pain. Because you're starting to wonder, is this really true of me as a person? And so the lie then for you to look at is, am I my job? Is my inherent worth dependent on what my boss thinks of me or what my coworkers think of me? Or maybe you're in a rotten marriage or a, a hostile relationship. And you are literally hearing words from maybe even a, an emotionally abusive or a verbally abusive spouse saying things about you that you are believing. Are you sure what that person is saying is true? Can you know absolutely that that thought is true? What they're telling you about yourself. Could it be that in, in maybe some or many cases, not to minimize the technical use of this, but what if we're all gaslighted to a certain degree? To see the world in a particular way because we've never challenged it and never asked the hard questions. Well, for me, um, 
you know, there were some real insights. Uh, one of them I have shared with you before, uh, at the very end of my, uh, that month off that I took in May of 2021, um, my last session with the therapist that works with pastors and stuff, uh, our closing time together, and <laughs> I'll never forget what he told me. Just as I'm trying to get off the phone, he says, hey, Pete, uh, just remember, uh, this experience that you just went through and all the things that led up to you being exhausted emotionally, you chose this. You chose this. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to blame everybody else for my problems. <laughs> it's much easier. I wanted to blame the pandemic and wanted a host of other things. But at the end of the day, he was saying, he was actually giving me a gift because he was saying, you chose that, you can choose otherwise. You have the freedom and the agency and the capacity to choose otherwise. And the same is true with other lies that we tell ourselves. We can identify the thing that we're hearing that is causing us suffering and look at that and question the veracity of that comment. Is that true? And if it's not true, we can say, I choose not to believe this. Especially if we really believe that God is with us, that there really is a still small voice that needs to be, uh, can only be heard perhaps in the silence, that God is constantly wanting to guide us. Maybe there's some truth here. Uh, some people uh, have the experience where, uh, in Beck's experience anyway, talks about people who have been telling themselves, I have to stay in this relationship. Because they've been telling themselves, that's what a good Christian does, or that's what a good person does. She herself had to deal with this in her own experience. Well, here's the thing. If you're believing the statement, you have to stay in this scenario, and you can't change it no matter what, you are going to feel like you're still lost in the dark wood of error because you're not going to feel like you have any control over your environment. But as soon as you can look back at that and, and back up from it and say, I have a choice here. It doesn't mean that you're going to immediately choose to, you know, go away from that relationship or that job or whatever the case may be, whatever thing you're struggling with, but just knowing you have agency to question and to wonder. It gives you ownership of your life. And when we have that kind of ownership, we are much more likely to be able to be in integrity, walking in our true selves. Does that make any sense at all? So Martha Beck, uh, she really experienced this and had to deal with this in very personal ways. First with the birth of her son who had Down syndrome. Um, she felt, and her husband at that time, felt like we need to be in the company of support. So they moved back to Utah, as I mentioned, to be around family. They got to jobs. Harvard people going to, I think it was Brigham Young is where they were at, a very conservative Mormon uh, university. And they discovered through all the other professors there that there were, were things that they could not talk about as professors. Uh, they couldn't talk about certain aspects of archaeology. They couldn't talk about certain aspects of history. They couldn't talk about DNA evidence that proves that uh, the people in Central America came more from Russia, Siberia, and worked their way down, and they were not a lost Jewish tribe. These kinds of things cause problems in an environment that says this is the way it has to be understood. When it comes to biblical criticism, they had to bite their tongue uh, because they knew if they challenged it, they'd be in trouble. 
Her father, by the way, was a very uh, well-known apologist within the Mormon church. She was teaching a class one day. So she, she faced that down and just decided she, she had to live in truth. She gave herself a, a challenge to live a full year uh, where she would not lie or accept a lie to herself. And that led her to make truth statements about what she knew to be true even in the academic world. And it got her in all kinds of trouble. It made headlines. It was a mess. She was teaching a class uh, on social justice, something, remember her, her stuff was on sociology. And it was about women and justice and this sort of thing and trauma. And women uh, in the class were talking about different things. And all of a sudden, um, and they're speaking of their own traumas and what they'd been through, uh, Martha Beck became physically ill. And she had to rush out of the room. And all of a sudden, she found herself in the hallway right outside the class with incredible abdominal pain and bleeding profusely. So they rushed her to the hospital, and uh, the doctors who uh, were with her were asking her all kinds of questions as they were trying to do emergency surgery and wondered, you know, did you, did you have a miscarriage of some kind? Did you, there are lots of questions, and because they found lots of scar tissue, and she had no answer for it until this very deeply buried truth was allowed to emerge that she was the victim of sexual violence from her own father at a very young age. And that's what caused uh, the scar tissue that eventually led to her hemorrhaging. Buried deep down. We do this to protect ourselves. This is a legit thing. Uh, people can bury their trauma so deeply they, they forget about it. They distance themselves. They compartmentalize it so they don't have to live with the trauma. It's how we survive. It's a survival mechanism that we do. And something, maybe we can get away with most of our lives, but sometimes, like with Mark, Martha Beck, some things trigger that, and all of a sudden, the thing opens up. And she was forced to look at her truth. But looking at that truth then, led to her life and led to her being able to get on the way of integrity where she was no longer tortured in that same space because she was free of it. We're going to find out next week that uh, you got to go through hell uh, to get through hell. <laughs> but you don't have to stay there. And part of the way that we get out of hell is by, well, we have to go through hell, but this truthfulness gets us to a space where we're able to see the light of day. But again, my question for you is, where are you suffering? What are you believing? Are you sure the messages that you're hearing or the messages you're telling yourself are true? Can you absolutely know that thought is true. Let's pray together. Where is your suffering? Where is your angst? Where are you lacking peace? 
where are you in the dark wood of error in your life right now? It could be many, many spaces in your life. Choose one. What is that pain? What is that conjuring up in your imagination in terms of statements that you're asked to believe about yourself, about the world? Are you sure it's true? Can you absolutely know that thought is true? God, I'm remembering a story of Jesus with um, some folks that were steeped in certainty, fellow Pharisees who were banking on a, a faith that was built on their Jewishness and their religiosity. And Jesus said a bold statement to them. He said, the truth will set you free. And the truth was just to be honest about what is really real. And here we are today, God, wondering what kind of hell we're in. And how do we get here? Help us separate the painful events that we all experience, God. Help us separate those things with the suffering that has been caused by our interpretation of that pain so that we might be free in our pursuit of truth. You are with us. Your love never gives up. It never gives up on us. Yours, your spirit, is the air that we breathe, that fills our lungs. May we continue to breathe and trust and move forward in truth. To that end, God, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for coming today. I hope you had a good experience. I hope I didn't beat you up too bad. And I hope this will send you on a good direction. See you next week. You got it. Oh.